Good morning, and uh, kids, you are released to class. Those of you who want to go. It is, it is always, always an honor and a privilege to be able to preach God's Word. It never ceases to amaze me what He teaches me throughout the week, putting a message together. Uh, this message is probably not going to make some people very happy in points, but in other points it will. So I'm just warning you right now, this is, this is a tougher word than we had last week. Last week was more fun, more joyful. This ends well, I will say that, but there are parts in here that are difficult. But I want to start out with kind of a funny story, which might be the only funny thing in this sermon. But, uh, you know, as we get through Psalm 69, you'll see where this becomes relevant. But I don't know about you, but, I mean, how many of you have ever fly fished in, or fished in a river before? A few? Good? Okay, so you few will know what I'm talking about. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is Bud, he was, a, he was a pastor of mine and really my mentor for many years. Um, he and I were fishing down by Texas Creek on the Arkansas River several years ago, and, uh, and I am not a very good fly fisherman, just, just, you know, I'm just not. In fact, I pretty much gave it up. But not after this moment. This, this is, you're going to laugh, um, but it is hilarious. At least I think it's hilarious. It wasn't so hilarious at the time. But we were, we were in the Arkansas River, so it was in the spring, so the river was a little high. And, uh, and I was walking across the river, and there's this pool. And if you know anything about fly fishing, sometimes they tell you that the bigger fish lie in the still waters in the pool. And so I was already up to about here, in the water in my waders, and I had full waders on. I did not have, those of you who are fly fishermen know, I didn't have my wader belt on. Um, so, I, you know. So I'm looking at this pool, and I'm thinking to myself in my head, you know, I watched the video, I've read the books. I know that if I just get closer, closer to that pool, and I can just make that one magical cast in there, and just drop that fly in the perfect place, I am going to come out with the fish of the day. So I, I just need to take one more step. And you know where I'm going with this, right? You're ahead of me already. This is good. I took that one more step. Whoosh! Out from under my, my feet went. I hit a slippery rock. And off I went racing down because it was spring. The current was pretty strong. I was racing down my back down the Arkansas River, wondering if I was ever going to stand up straight again. Eventually, through flailing, and you can imagine, <laughs> flailing and flailing and flailing, I finally got my feet straight. I don't know, I was probably 100 yards down the river by that time, and my friend Bud was like, are you all right? I go, yeah, and it's spring, so that water is really cold. So I told him, well, I'm awake now. And because I didn't, have a, I didn't have a wader belt on, the water got down into my, into my uh, waders about ankle deep. But I can tell you, you know, at the, now it's funny, but at the time it was a little scary. And uh, as we look at Psalm 69 this morning, uh, we'll note that Psalm 69 is a very long psalm. And like last week, we're not going to be able to go through each verse individually or we'd be here until the end of tomorrow. But we are going to break this psalm up into seven parts. 
seven separate sections, and we're going to discuss each section. Because in order really to understand this psalm and what David is saying, we need to look at it in its entirety as best that we can. But we need to break it up into thoughts and discuss what those thoughts are that David is talking about. So we're not going to be reading this psalm from the beginning to the end. At the beginning, we'll be reading it pieces as we go. So let's bow our heads in prayer and get started. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for allowing David to write this psalm. Um, at parts, Lord, it is difficult. At parts, Lord, it, it might challenge us. It, in parts, Lord, we are going to be joyful. But Lord, it is your word, and I need to be true to your word no matter what. And so, Lord, I ask, I ask, I plead with you to preach through me this morning, that your spirit would guide us through the psalm in a way that glorifies you, and that you would open our hearts and our minds, Lord, to what it is that you have to say to us, What do you want us to learn about you today? And Lord, we just ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we read the first three verses, and we'll read the first three verses of Psalm 69, we see that David David is struggling. He starts out and he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. So see, you now understand why I use that illustration to start out with. He says, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. At this very beginning part of the psalm, David is laying out his complaint, his lament. This psalm is what's known as a lament or a complaint psalm or in some parts it's known as imprecatory. In other words, we'll see as we go along that David is asking God to judge his enemies, and rather harshly too, we'll see. But in this first part, David is laying himself out. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I am sinking deep into the mire where there is no foothold. He is in turmoil. He is overwhelmed. Have you ever in your life been in a flood? Have you ever been in deep water like I was in the Arkansas River, feeling like you're drowning and out of control? You're floundering and you're at the mercy of the current. Like there is no place to get a strong foothold. Your feet can't quite touch the bottom and you're scared. Or when you do touch bottom, you just sink further into the mire. And this is how David was feeling. Although in David's case, it wasn't that he was physically in a river or in a flood, but he was surrounded by his enemies, and the magnitude of his enemies was that caused him to feel like he was drowning in what was happening around him. And as is the case in a lot of the Psalms that we look at, there is no historical context for David. We don't know if his enemy is Absalom, his wicked son, or if it is Saul who is continuing to to chase after him and try to kill him, or if it's the Philistine army coming after him that he battled with so many times. But what is interesting that we see here is that even though David is describing being surrounded by water, by floods, he thirsts. Verse 3 says that he is weary from crying out against 
whoever is after him. His throat is parched and his eyes are growing dim. He has had enough. He is in trouble. He is out of his own strength. David is at the end of himself. So I ask you, what was the last battle that you were in? When was the last time you felt overwhelmed and at the end of yourself? There are things that happen to us that can cause us to feel overwhelmed and lost. One is relationship struggles, money problems, something like your car breaks down or the washing machine or the stove or even the refrigerator and there's no money to fix it. You have debt issues. More money goes out the door than comes in. Maybe someone is killing your reputation by telling lies and slandering you behind your back. Maybe it's a custody battle and you're losing it because the truth is not coming out about you. Lies are being spoken about you. You're being shown to be a bad person and that's not true. And here's a biggie. Maybe your sin is your enemy. Maybe your battle is your flesh. That you cannot defeat the sin that is nagging at you no matter which weapon you use to try. You are using all of your strength to fight off this sin and you just can't seem to win the battle. David, in a few verses, will show us how we're to handle our sin if that is your enemy today. But let's look at verse 4. Let's see what David says in verse 4. He says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Where I did not steal, must I now restore? David says that there are many after him, that he didn't do anything to deserve this situation. And if you're a student of the Bible, you might recognize that a portion of verse 4 are words that Jesus quotes. In John 15, Jesus is telling his disciples right before he goes to Gethsemane to pray and be arrested and head to the cross. He is telling them that, excuse me, they, that they will be persecuted for their faith because of Christ. And this is because of what Jesus says in 1525. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled that they hated me without a cause. See, Jesus knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be accused. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows that he is going to the cross for those who are doing this very thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us, this, tells us this about Jesus. He says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're in a battle, if you're fighting a war against someone or your own sin, remember that there is nothing that you go through that Jesus hasn't endured. Although we know that Jesus himself was not a sinner. He is not a sinner. He never sinned, but he was tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He is the one, the innocent one, who came and took our sin, our punishment upon himself. And he knows what it's like to have enemies after him. 
These next two verses, David confesses his sin before the Lord. Sin is something that we know Jesus never took part in, like I just said. He never sinned, but David did. David was a sinner. Verse 5 says, O God, we know, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. And here's, here is the lesson for us from what David is saying right now. David owns his sin. David owns his sin. He is not blaming others for his own sin. He knows that he is not a perfect person, and he knows that the Lord sees all of his sin. David wrote in, in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Now this next section can either be really frightening or really comforting, depending on where you are. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. There is no hiding our sin from a God who is omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. David, knowing this, confesses his son before God. But he does one more thing. David understood that his sin not only affects himself, but others, especially those who trust in the Lord. He pleads with the Lord to not allow his sin to shame others. Now, we talk a lot about sin. We always remind each other that we're all sinners. We say that we all fall short of God's glory. But a lot of time, we do not mention how our sin can affect others. Let me give you some examples of that. Adultery. Jesus said adultery not only includes the physical act of having a relationship with someone outside of marriage, but it also includes the thought or fantasy of having a physical relationship with someone not your spouse. And this includes looking at pornography. You might think it only affects you, but it doesn't. Adultery in any form affects your spouse, which can lead to marital problems and a lot of times divorce. And if you have children, this can affect the children, whether they are young or older. It can scare them. They can become hurt. They may need therapy. They may not wish to become married because they haven't witnessed a godly marriage. They haven't seen a godly father or mother. They may grow angry with God. Beyond children, it can affect your work life because you may become depressed and less productive. And now you have to meet with lawyers and judges or take time off for marital counseling. In-laws and parents are also affected by the sin. And the person who you had the affair with, along with their family relationships, are affected as well. What about addiction to alcohol and drugs? Again, this sin runs much deeper than just you. It affects families. Families who have to live with you and witness your behavior, 
They love you and they do not want to watch you go down a destructive path, but here you go. Children and spouses are affected in negative ways. You spend money on drugs or alcohol instead of food or shelter, leaving you and your families homeless. It leads to despair and sometimes suicide. Then the government is expected to help you out with their welfare programs. Whole industries are built on addiction. Not just pot shops, but rehab facilities. Police departments add officers to deal with the problems. Paramedics and hospitals deal with overdoses. And it's all the fault of addiction and sin. Well, you might be thinking, you know, I'm, I'm glad those aren't my issues. Well, hear me on this, that all sin affects others, not just you. Above all else, it affects your relationship with Christ. In fact, it caused Christ to go to the cross. He had to die for your sin. Sin is selfishness and pride. It is an I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to do what I want to do attitude. We don't think about how our actions affect others, but we should. And David did. And he confessed and he repented and he went to the Lord. So let me ask you, as I had to ask myself this week, believe me, the first person who gets preached to is, is the pastor who's doing the work, putting together the sermon. So I am speaking to you, but I have spoken to myself first. Do you, Scott, and all of you, own your own sin before the Lord? Do you own your own sin and its effects on others in your lives? David said, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let those who seek you, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. I told you parts of this aren't going to be much fun. But we need to follow David's example in verses 5 and 6 and keep a very short leash on sin. As John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you and others around you. We kill sin by holding a very short leash on it, by reading God's Word daily, and understanding how He wants us to live by confessing our sin and repenting to the Lord as soon as possible after we sin. By trusting in God to, to give you the strength to overcome your battle, realizing that in your own strength alone you cannot win the battle. By finding a brother or sister you trust as an accountability partner. Someone you can trust to confess to and who will tell you what you need to hear and not just tickle your ears. And as we move to verses 7 through 12, where David pleads to the Lord again, laying out his case before the Lord, he sees that his actions that he has been attacked for are not worthy of the punishment and contempt he is receiving. He is striving to do the Lord's work as king of Israel. And as we just looked at, David is despondent. He knows who he is. 
he is humbled. He says in verse 7, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And then he talks about that he wept, and he was humbled, and he fasted. And even that, as he was seeking after the Lord, became a reproach to him. And then he has become the laughingstock of society, so much so that even the drunkards are making fun of him. David is a king. He is the king of Israel. And he is now the scorn of those he is the king of. They are making fun of him. But he sees his actions this time to be about serving the Lord and his zeal for serving the Lord in his house, the tabernacle. David, remember, has provided a large cache of gold for the future temple. David is about God's work. He is known by God as a man after the Lord's heart. He loved the Lord and wanted to please the Lord. But now he's a laughingstock. He is wounded beyond his ability. He is a king brought low, feeling defeated and at the end of himself. Let me ask you, is this is this you today? You may not be a king, but you are human. And even though that we may not have a large group of people who we sit over in judgment like a king, we still have people in our circle of influence who might be coming after us. We might be feeling beaten down and sorrowful. Let me just tell you, that's not really an abnormal emotion. It's what we do with it that is the issue. We know that Jesus went through greater trials than you and I will ever face. We never had the world's sins, past, present, and future, laid on us, and we never will thank the Lord. He, Jesus, understands everything that we go through. Hebrews 2, 17-18 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, remember the perfect atonement, for our sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. David's words in this psalm, we, we see that the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ our Savior, we, we read about that in, in Isaiah 53, looking at verses 2 and 3. Jesus, it says, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed, we esteemed him not. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, greater than David, also felt the scorn of those that he was the ruler of. Even his own family thought he was nuts. Mark 3.21 says, And when his family heard it, when he was out healing people, when he was out proclaiming the kingdom of God, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. 
Imagine that. We, fortunately, have a Savior that understands. He understands that we go through. We have a Savior we can trust and turn to like David did when things become so difficult it seems as though we are drowning. And we cry out to Him, Abba, Father, which doesn't just mean Daddy because we are to obey our Father. So that word means also to obey. And as we see with David and with Jesus, following the Lord is not for the faint of heart. We are told to count the cost. The cost of following Jesus is high. It is not just a prayer. It will cost you everything. It could cost you your reputation. Some of your friends, maybe even some of your family. Sometimes everything, including your health and your wife. Obeying the Lord and doing what He says and proclaiming His good news can become unpopular because you don't follow what society says is acceptable. But you stand for the Lord. This week, there was a speech by our president. Now, I want you to hear me on this. This is not a political statement, all right? I'm listening. I didn't listen to the speech in whole, but I have seen snippets of it, and I listened to it with the pastor's heart. Hear what he said. I know who he was talking to, but he includes us into it. Because he said that we, people who stand for the word of God and the sanctity of life, in this, the fact that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that God made people male and female, he said that we're taking the nation backwards. That we're, what did he call us? Heretics. He didn't use that word, but I can't remember what the word was that he used right now. But he basically was talking about a certain group of people but when you listen to it through a pastor's heart, he is talking about Bible-believing Christians. That we are not progressive. We are not seeing the new way. Let me tell you this, okay? I got to say this. I got to say this. I have to. I have to stand on the Word of God. If I don't, if Matt doesn't, if anyone else who stands in this pulpit does not stand for it, whether it's popular or not, Get me out of here! Quick! Save me for myself! Because let me tell you this one thing, okay? I love you. It does me no good. It does you no good for me to tell you what you might want to hear to make you feel good. Because if I do that, you may end up in hell. I can't have that. I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, but they didn't like it when I said that. We are prophets. If you look at the word prophet and you look at the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, you wouldn't want to be one. Their lives are miserable. It was hard. God's word is hard. But we are called to stand for it. We are called to stand for it, even the parts that don't make us feel good. Understand this. I must teach the truth as David did. And that's what David was doing. 
as he is talking about in the psalm, he was standing for the Lord. He was standing for the Lord. The fifth point that we're going to look at here is David looking now at verses 13 through 20. He comes to the Lord and he prays to the Lord. He's pleading for the Lord to deliver, excuse me, to deliver him. He says in verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep waters swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. David is pleading for the Lord to deliver him. His prayer is for the Lord. And this prayer, this prayer is a model prayer for all of us when we come to the Lord, when we are despondent and in despair, when we feel like the world is coming after us and we have nowhere to turn because we don't. The only place that we can turn and ever should turn is to Jesus, to the Lord God Almighty himself and lay it out for him. We look at this and we can see that, that this is the things that David pleads. There are 11 things. And you're thinking, okay, we're going to be here a while. No, we're just going to repeat them. 11 things. One, to answer him in God's own timing. Are we patient enough to wait for God to, to answer us in his time? Knowing that he will answer us? Two, deliver me from the mire. Deliver me. That he would deliver David from where he finds himself right now. He knows his God will do this. Deliver me from my enemies is the third thing. The fourth thing is to save him from the flood. The fifth thing is to answer him because God's love is good. Six, that the Lord would turn to him. Seven, that he would not hide his face from him. Eight, he wants the Lord to answer him quickly. And who wouldn't want the Lord to answer quickly when you're in distress, when you're fighting a battle? Nine, draw near to my soul. You see, when we go through difficulties in life, sometimes we feel like God is so far away. How could he be with me if I'm going through this terrible time in life? When I have enemies after me, my sin is overcoming me, and I cannot, I cannot overcome what I'm going through. David doesn't tell God to stay away from him or blame him. He knows the answer is for God to draw near to him. And then the tenth thing is to redeem him. 
And the 11th thing is to ransom him. Because that is his only hope. You see, the Lord hears prayer. I say that all the time because I want us to understand that, that we must be a praying church. We must know that God hears us. I challenged you several weeks ago when we went through Psalm 65 and verse 2 to to memorize it. It's very simple. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Remember that. O you who hear prayer. But God is not just a God who hears prayer. He is also a God who speaks and a God who acts. Listen to the Lord's words to the Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Excuse me. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the Lord's word, it goes out as promises are real and true. It will accomplish, it will succeed with what he sent it out to do. And when David pleaded to be redeemed and to be delivered, the Lord heard him and he acted. As he did for all of us. He sent Jesus, he sent his son down to earth. And he came to save his people from their sin, to heal the brokenhearted, to bring sight to the blind and, and bring hearing to the deaf, both from a physical state as well as a spiritual state. He came so the spiritually dead will rise and live. That's all of us. Even those of us who've put our faith in Christ were once spiritually dead, and now we are alive in Christ. He came so the lost could be found. He is the righteous judge. As we get to this next section, verses 21 through 28, we see that David, he's angry. He's hurt. He's tired. He's broken. He's had enough. And he begins to ask for the full wrath of his Lord to be unleashed on his enemies. We're actually going to take time to read this because we're actually doing well on time. This is going to be great. He says this starting in verse 21. He says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to their punishment upon punishment. You see, he's very, very mad. May they have no acquittal from you. And then, this being the worst thing that he asked, let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You see, David wants revenge. He wants revenge on those who are trying to kill him by giving him poison for food and sour wine to drink. 
And you might remember that when Jesus himself was on the cross right before he died and he gave up his spirit, he said, I thirst. And they put a sponge on a stake and they dipped it in sour wine and put it up to his mouth. Not pleasant in any way, I'm sure. And David asks nine things from God to inflict on his enemies. Nine things. That their food table would become a snare. The second thing is that it would become a trap. And the third thing, that they would lose their eyesight. The fourth, that their loins would tremble. I'm not 100% sure exactly what all that means, but it doesn't sound good. Five, he asks for God's wrath on them. Six, that God's anger be poured on them. Seven, to make their camp desolate and empty. Eight, that God will not forgive them. And nine, worst of all, worst of all, that they would be removed from the book of life to be cast into hell. David is up to his eyeballs with his enemies. Have you ever felt this one about someone? You know, I know that I've had people in my life that I've dealt with in the past where, to be honest with you, um, if they were in heaven with me for eternity and I had to stand next to them for eternity, that that might feel more like hell than heaven. And um, honestly, it's not supposed to be funny because I shouldn't feel that way. I shouldn't feel that way. But like David's prayer, it's not up to me. David isn't the final judge regarding his enemies, and neither am I, and neither are you. And really, that's good news for all of us, isn't it? Because imagine how we would be judged. Maybe there's people thinking that about us. Only the Lord is the final judge. He is the one who wrote the names of his people in the Lamb's book of life before time began. As Revelation 13.9 tells us, it's not up to us who is in it and who isn't. I had a pastor one time, and he said this. He said, we're not going to be surprised by who's in heaven, but we will be surprised by who's not. Because there's going to be people there that we think would be there who do pious things in church, read their Bibles, act very Christian, but have never surrendered their life to Christ. Their books are not found in the book of life because they have never given themselves over to Christ. Don't let that be you. Piety will not get you to heaven. Christ will. But it's, again, not up to us. We don't know who's in the book of life. David doesn't know and you don't know. But the Lord does know. And David is a man and not God. His prayer is subject to the Lord's will. So it doesn't mean a person can lose their salvation. If you are in Christ, you are saved. Revelation 3.5 The one who conquers us, conquers by putting our faith in Christ, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So if you're unsure if your name is written in the book of life, you need to come to Jesus today. Repent of your sins and turn to him today. And we can help you with that. Zane can, I can, Dennis can. Many of us can help you today. If you're not sure, don't leave today without being sure. But even as we see in this that David here is praying this 
for God's wrath upon his enemies. We hear Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43-48, who says that we should love our enemies. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who, if you love, those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There are always consequences to a person's actions. And there will be consequences for our enemy's actions. But that judgment for their souls is up to God. We are to be different. We are to pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us. As believers, we are to live to a more difficult standard. When Jesus said these words, he was just a little more than three years from going to the cross as the perfect illustration in praying and loving those who persecute him, his enemies. As we head now to the end of the psalm, and we look at these last eight verses, we see the beauty of David's heart and why he truly was known as a man after God's own heart. In spite of his sin, he knows who his God is. He knows who his Lord and Savior is. Starting in verse 29, he says, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David ends in a bang. So in spite of what he is facing, in spite of his pain, in spite of his weariness, he praises God with thanksgiving. David returns to the Lord to ask for his deliverance and for his salvation. For his relief from all of his pain and afflictions can only be found in God. This is a call for us as hearers of this word to turn to praise him with thanksgiving. To return with thanksgiving to the Lord in times of pain and suffering. In times of persecution and affliction. We come with a heart full of thanksgiving because a heart of thanksgiving is more pleasing to the Lord than any sacrifice that we can bring Him. It is an aroma to His nostrils that pleases Him more than an ox or a bull on a sacrificial altar. More than anything given out of obligation. Think of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. The guys in our men's Bible study on Tuesday mornings, we've been spending a lot of time in Genesis 4. 
is we see in this Genesis 4 that Abel brought the best of his best out of his heart to the Lord, not because of obligation, but because Abel saw the Lord as he is, his Savior, his Creator, his God. Cain's offering, on the other hand, was rejected because it was given out of obligation and not love. Cain had a low view of God, and Abel had a high view of God. And Cain, even as he stood right before God, think of this, God is standing right before him, confronting him in his sin, and even as the Lord is pointing this out to him, Cain never repented. Never. All he did was complain that the Lord's punishment was too much for him to bear. Seriously? But here is David coming before the Lord with the one thing that the Lord wants from us. Our heart. Our heart that is filled with thanksgiving for everything that the Lord has done for us. So let's summarize everything that we learn from our psalm today. And there are four things. And the first one is that we are to turn to the Lord and pray to Him in all circumstances. To bring our afflictions and pain and suffering before Him. To not wait for ourselves to figure out the problem and the solution, but to come to Him because He knows what we go through. Because He was there Himself. He faced rejection and scorn. The second thing is that we are to bring our sins to the Lord and repent. Repentance is a beautiful thing. It's not a terrible word. It is turning from our sin that leads to death and separation from our Savior to turning to Christ who has His arms open wide in love to you as we see on the cross in the shedding of His blood. We are to come to the Lord in repentance and forgiveness. Yes, we will sin. And yes, He will forgive us, but only if we come to Him and seek that. Third, to bring our request before Him, before God, and allow His will to be done. No matter how much we want His wrath to be poured out on our enemies, it is the Lord's will whether He pours His wrath out on them or not. In fact, we are also supposed to pray for those who persecute us. Pray for those who are our enemies. The fourth thing is that we are to praise God with a heart of thanksgiving no matter where we find ourselves. The Lord wants and deserves our heart. He bought it with a very high price. He doesn't want part of your heart. He demands the whole thing. He demands your full worship with a heart of thanksgiving for Him and Him alone. He doesn't want your heart divided between another love and Him. He is not a God and then there's another. He is the God. He is your Savior. And He is Christ alone. There is no other. He wants your heart. He bought all of your heart. And He will not accept anything less. He is the one who gives you everything. You are His creation. 
and he doesn't make any mistakes. Today is the day that you need to give him your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for the power of Psalm 69. Lord, I pray that even though it's a difficult psalm and can cut us to the core of where we are, Lord, I pray that we would, re- we would use this psalm as an example of how we are to deal with times that are difficult in our lives. When we feel like our enemies are surrounding us, Lord, and we are drowning, that we can't get a foothold, that we are just slipping further and further into the mire and away from you. Lord, sometimes it's people who do this to us, and sometimes it's our own sin. I pray, God, that we would keep a very short leash on our sin, that we would come to you, Lord, in repentance and seek your forgiveness, Lord, that can only be found in Christ and his work on the cross. Lord, Lord, let us live in the power of your resurrection that helps us defeat death. You defeated it for us. We just need to turn to you, Lord. Lord, help us to remember that your will will be done to our enemies. And we are to pray, Lord, for those who come against us and persecute us, to lift them up to you and ask for their salvation. Father God, let us always come to you with the heart of thanksgiving because you have given us everything. You have given us life. You have given us all that we have. Father God, let us not forget that. Let us always remember that we come to you with the heart of thanksgiving. And Lord, if there is someone here this morning who is not sure if their name is written in the book of life, I pray, God, that they would come to you today. Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that their heart would turn to you, and they would receive forgiveness and your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, now we come 